0: Hey team, welcome to another episode of the Intentional Agribusiness Leader Podcast. The podcast where we actually explore the minds of leaders from all around the agriculture and agribusiness space about what it takes to lead intentionally in this industry today. My friends, if there's some value in here for you today, we ask you to subscribe to the podcast, share this with someone who needs to hear the message of what it takes to be intentional. Let's get into the show. All right, Todd, man, thank you uh, for for making time to be on the Intentional Agribusiness Leader Podcast. I'm super excited to dive into that brain of yours today and, and see what you can share with us as, as it pertains to being intentional about leading agriculture in uh, in a time when there's a lot of variables influencing how we make decisions. So I think this is going to be fascinating. I want to get us kicked off with the opening question that everybody gets though. What does it mean to you to be intentional?
1: Yeah When I, when I hear intentional or intentional leadership, I think that the first thing that pops into my mind is about being you know, mindful and, and present and, and really being deliberate about your actions. But I think in a, bigger picture context, I think it's really about having a firmer, stronger connection between your big picture purpose and mission and what you're doing with your time on a day-to-day basis. I think that's what really resonates with me is this, you know, I I feel like I'm striving to have a, a more firm, more uh, concrete connection between my big picture purpose and what I'm doing with my time on a on an hour-by-hour hour or even a minute-by-minute minute basis. And so I, I get up every morning and, and try to really focus on how can I spend more of my time today connecting with and, and serving the the bigger picture purpose. And so it's really about taking a kind of a Sometimes a, a a bigger picture, longer term uh, concept, and making it real on a on a day to day basis, and so mm-hmm. you know that's kind of that's really what resonates with me, and kind of what I try to focus on in terms yeah. of being
0: intentional. I, I I really enjoy that because one of the reasons that I've even created this podcast is to provide a conversation or a set of conversations, some resources, and an experience for leaders to pay attention to the fact that sometimes we get a little bit myopic in our approach and we're just looking to solve the thing that we got to react to today. Most of the time, you know, when we're getting called in to work with organizations on maybe solving some sort of, you know, employee related issues or, you know, turnovers too high or sales teams not performing or um, whatever the variable is, often that's in reaction to, uh, you know something that's happening now. <laughs> uh, right. Rarely is it, hey, help us build a team uh, because we see something amazing or an amazing opportunity or something really dramatic happening in the market about five to 10 years out. We got to get ready now. I've never had that conversation with anybody ever in a sales conversation. And and you're somebody who who has a unique seat because of the nature of the consulting work that you do, uh, over, especially overseas. You're working a lot in, in, in China, in Asia. Uh, you've been in Latin. Latin America um, with with Swine Insights and in other roles. So, talk to us a little bit about you know what do what do organizations need to be thinking about around developing talent for the future and from you know just from the uh, the thirty thousand foot view that you get these days.
1: Yeah, so I think I have a, sort of a dual perspective on this. I mean, internally here we're a we're a very small team, um, and we are trying to build a culture around entrepreneurialism really and and i'm trying to you know my vision there is to bring together a a bunch of people that are entrepreneurial minded that have complementary skills and try to create an ecosystem where they can work together to create value for clients Mm -hmm. and not in a compulsory sort of way, but really in a, in a way where, you know, Hey, you come together and we think you've got something to contribute along with everybody else on the team, but you're remain free to go pursue other interests as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's definitely a non-traditional model in terms of, you know, not necessarily bringing on employees, but really bringing on people on a contract basis and, and it allows us to attract a different kind of person. And I think it allows us to create a uh, a dynamic that everybody benefits from. You know, me, our other teammates on the Sway Insights team, and then uh, more importantly, our ultimately our, our clients that we interact with. And so, um, I think that's an example. Uh, may not be practical in every. Um, implementation uh, for people to do that, but I think it's an example of kind of the the creativity that we need to be developing around addressing this issue. I mean, no matter where Mm -hmm. I'm working with clients, and that's the other piece, and it's a lot more traditional, um, you know, this is an issue that I work with my consulting clients on on a a daily basis, and, you know, the two issues that come up everywhere I go in the world are animal health and labor. Uh, yeah. And, and they're, are slightly different concerns around labor, you know, in some places it's, you know, we can't find quality labor and in some places we can't afford the labor. And, mm. um, you know, there's, there's some different issues, but it's, it's, it's on the top three list of virtually every client yeah. um, that I have around the world. And and so I think it really, I think the big message that I'm trying to pass along to the industry is i think we're really at an inflection point here as it comes to labor and i think we've got to get a lot more creative than we have in the past and you know doing more of what we've done to get ourselves here i just don't think it's going to cut it moving forward and so i think we've got to get a lot more creative about tapping into non-traditional sources of 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 talent you know whether that's high school graduates or whether that's uh you know, uh, semi-retired people that still have something to contribute, or you know, whether that's uh, you know really en- engaging in a different way with uh, the immigrant community and um, in some of these countries like the U.S. I mean, I really think there's a, there's a ton of opportunity to to get very creative and really you know start thinking about things in a different way and to mm-hmm. kind of use a cliche, I think we've really got to get outside the box on that, um, yeah. you know, and and really. In, in addition to that, I think it's, it's, it's also about focusing on, you know, not necessarily focusing on the people as much as focusing on the, the job, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I've talked to a, a client, had a really frank conversation with a client in China a few weeks ago, and I said, you know, he complained about not being able to find people to, to work. And I said, well, you know, maybe it's not a great job, right? <laughs> maybe it's just not a nice, you know, situation, you know. And, and they've had the, the, the luxury in the past of having, you know, huge volumes of, you know, relatively cheap labor. And, and I'm a proponent of the idea that cheap labor is a myth, but uh, it does drive behavior <laughs> on both the employee and the employer side. Um, and, and, you know, I was basically trying to convince him to you know, rethink the opportunity, right? How can we make this job more attractive? to the people mm-hmm. instead of having, you know, trying to find people that are willing to do this job. Maybe we need to try to make this job more attractive to the people. And I looked around the room and there's a couple of young people, uh, you know, that had college degrees and, you know, I looked at them and said, would you want to do this job? And they were like, you know, <laughs> you know, no, I wouldn't want to do it. Well, no, it's not a great job. You know, how do we make this a better job? And, and those are, you know, it's an easy thing to say and a hard thing to do, but I I really think we've got to get a lot more creative and really step outside of our comfort zone and start trying to think about how we, how we can formulate opportunities for people that are attractive to, uh, to the next generation.
0: Yeah. Well, and you know, this just sort of popped into my mind and it's relevant because it it just happened the other day. Uh, I was at uh, the hardware store with my son and as we're, thrown in a couple bags of soil and some light bulbs and, you know, various things we had to pick up from, from Lowe's. We're uh, a, a couple of young Mormon gentlemen came up, you know, with their, I mean, it was, it, we're in North Carolina. It was 95 degrees with 105 degree heat index. They got black slacks, white t-shirt, you know, white, long sleeve, white shirts with a tie on and their little name tag, you know, an elder, so-and-so elder, so-and-so. And, and I, I'm not going to debate anybody on the whole religious aspect. That's not the point of this story. That's a tough job. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a tough job. And like the, so the, you know, in that church, in the first, you know, two years, when you 18 and 19 or 19 and 20, whatever the, the time frame is for, for members of that, that church, first two years out of high school, they go and serve the Lord, right? You know, serve their church <laughs> to spread the, you know, to spread the word, you know, and, and try to expand their, their church. And so, it's fascinating to me, right? Like that a lot of people don't want to have that conversation. A lot of people will not be as understanding as I am because I have a lot of friends who are Mormons. So I've had the conversation with them and and I'm not, but I respect the heck out of what these people have to go and do, right? Yep. That's a tough job. You know, in an in interesting idea, and this is kind of I'm just playing off of what you're saying, is you know, hey, maybe there's a mission, right, for young people to get involved in the food industry, right? Yep. In the in the animal production industry. Like this is a place where we need people similar to like, if you grew up in, in Israel, right. And you, and you everybody gets to go do two year, a two year stint in the military, you know, and they look how loyal, <laughs> you know, these people are Look at some of the problems that, that eliminates I actually was at an event. Uh, we ran an event a couple of weeks ago. And I said, if if every young person in America, especially every young man, every 13 year old in America had to go hunting and shoot a deer and see what it looks like right the school shooting stuff all this all these other like atrocities that we see that's going to go away mm. right if we get young people engaged in something early and so i'm i'm riffing just a little bit this is by no means my campaign platform but i'm just looking as you're talking about thinking outside the box like hey how could we redefine the opportunity Right. Hey, this is, yeah, for two years, you get to go do something, or maybe for six months, you get to go do something and you can rotate rotate people in through. But that would be better than some of the, I mean, I know, uh, you know, uh, pork operations, um, you know, certain locations in Oklahoma and different places that have 400, 500, 600% turnover. It's just a revolving door, right? Of people coming through. So, anyway, I are you seeing the same thing? No matter where you go, is it is it a, a labor challenge? I mean, they're not getting a better deal in China because there's cheaper labor, or other parts of Southeast Asia or Mexico. I mean, you're not you're seeing the same things.
1: Yeah, i have seeing really similar trends, and I think you know they're in different, different phases of it but it, it's a, it's a challenge, you know, everywhere we go. And that you know, that whole idea of, you know, having a, you know, unlimited supply of, you know, willing labor, um, is just really not true almost anywhere. I mean, probably the only place that it might still somewhat be true is in Africa. And we've, we've done a few new projects in Africa. I'm super interested in Africa and been trying to get engaged there for a while. It's just a, it's a complicated place. And, um, I think we finally found, um, a couple of opportunities to do that so i made a couple of trips over there and and there it's not so much about labor availability it's about finding you know quality people that have the 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 training and the mindset that you need you know in, in order to be successful so uh, yeah. it's definitely different in different places but um there's a lot i mean it's a lot more similar in china right now to the us than what most people realize um you know their their labor costs have gone up dramatically and productivity hasn't really gone up with it. And so, you know, it's, they're trying to make, China's always a challenge because things always happen 10 times faster there. And so they've got like 25 years worth of consolidation that's happened in like four years, right? And Mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, trying to keep up with that. And like I told a a client in in China a couple of weeks ago, I said, look, industries can change really fast, but people change much slower, right? And so all the people-related stuff Is a whole lot bigger challenge because everything else is moving at a pace that just, you know, people change, uh, can't really keep up with.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, so we we definitely see, you know, that's a that's both both a near term and probably long term issue facing pork production and other livestock um, aspects of the industry. I'm curious, uh, just as I think about all the other aspects of the industry that uh, you know. Ultimately, a lot of the you know corn and soybeans go through the livestock production, uh, or or are you know <clears throat> uh, raised to serve livestock production. Uh, and there's a lot of companies that serve those industries, and we're all tied together, right? There's no way that you know it's 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 all it all leans in on each other ultimately. So as if if I'm a if I'm a, a leader of one of these companies any company in ag and i want to be intentional about taking care of my people leading my business having the right insights what are you seeing you know give us a glimpse you know 10 years out to to 15 years out uh, cuz i think this is important to me you know part of being intentional is taking time to work on yourself and work on your business as opposed mm-hmm. to just being reactionary. And we live in this reactionary world you and I talked about before we hit recorded, <laughs> right? We're reacting to the next 12 months, but what about five, you know, 60 months out, or what about 120 months out, right? We're looking, looking down the road. So uh, if I want to be intentional about leading that company into the next five, 10, 15 years, what, 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 what insights can you share with us that we should be thinking about?
1: Uh, I think you need to have a, a, A mechanism, a process for thinking about the future in a systematic way. Um, I've done quite a bit of training around strategic foresight. And I think that framework offers a a pretty compelling uh, way to approach that longer term thinking. And and like we talked about uh, before, uh, before we started recording you know, the, in the agriculture industry, we're really good at living in the moment and we're really good at that next 12 months, right? In uh, those those kind of, that window of time where we're, you know, looking at futures markets and when we're looking at, you know, weather patterns and stuff like that, that's a that's a type of futures thinking that we're very comfortable with. Um, and so you have, you know, very often agricultural organizations are quite good at planning for the next 12 to maybe 18 months. And then uh, fewer, but still quite a few have a pretty decent you know, three to five-year business plan. Um, And I think what we really need to do is stretch that horizon out pretty significantly, not quit doing what you're doing now. I mean, it's really, it's adding to that. But I think what you you can't do is just take those same procedures, those same processes that you use for that shorter or medium-term business planning and translate that to long-term business planning. And long-term business planning is more about, you know, not trying to, Predict what's going to happen, but trying to imagine scenarios that are at least plausible Um, and then entertaining a wide variety of those scenarios and then start trying to identify trends and start trying to identify those things that uh, keep coming up repeatedly. You know, in, in even different scenarios and start identifying those capabilities that as an organization you can begin developing that are very likely to be able to be more valuable 10 years from now or 15 years from now than they are today. Right. And so it yeah. gives you a lot of flexibility and being able to, to, to do those over long periods of time uh, and doesn't require. Really, all that much effort. Um, it's just about spending a little bit of time living in the future in a in a productive way. And so, I think a big part of that is is, is trying to develop that framework. I think strategic foresight offers you know uh, a, a flexible and a reasonable framework to, to kind of do that in that is that is both realistic and then and, and has real uh, application value uh, you know, as it relates to. Labor, I think we need to be really thinking about you know where are we going to be at in terms of technology and you know what kind of jobs are we going to need to be uh, hiring for. Uh, You know, labor is a major uh, limitation across agriculture. It's certainly an issue in our industry, but um, you know, in specialty crops, it's a major problem. You know, one of the things that I, when I talk to people that are advocating for vegetarianism or veganism, I tell them you know look, there's there's not enough non-animal based uh material out there to feed the planet and Mm -hmm. even if there was there's certainly not enough people to harvest it right Um, and and so you know that's a real limitation i mean it's 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 the major limitation to meat processing in north america it's a it's the major limitation to expanding pretty much any uh part of agriculture at this point so i think getting creative around that and trying to figure out what does that look like and, and trying to create kind of craft a opportunity from the employee back and and really thinking of kind of reverse engineering these roles trying to figure out how can we make that more attractive to the kind of people that we want to attract i think is going to be critical
0: yeah yeah and it, it, it's such a fascinatingly complex issue <laughs> when you think about what working the problem backwards from the employee level and then overlaying what you know, what some of these, uh, what some of this strategic foresight might tell us, you know, about the future. And it's just, it's such a fascinating place. And, and I think that's one of the things that makes being intentional so challenging is that it really does take work, right? It does take investment. It does take time. And this is where I think a lot of people just, it's why we punch so many of our big issues down to the next generation. Mm-hmm. Right. And we just keep punting and punting. But I mean, as, as you know, I mean, when I think about the law of exponentials, like we can punt and punt and punt, but eventually like this, this thing will eventually take off and get to a point where, you know, where any you know, things can become, um, un you know, so, well, it's a, it, it's and so if, necessary. if you look,
1: if you look out through human history, I mean, we have historically been a species that's very good at adapting and very yeah. poor at long-term planning right especially for things that we can't see you know mm-hmm. that we that we can't you know that aren't tangible um you know so you think about you know climate change you think about you know all these different things that we that we've done a you know kind of a poor job of thinking about in the future and i think you know part of that is is trying to understand uh, you know the the most valuable 21st century skill is going to be you know, being able to get out into the future and think in the future in a productive Mm -hmm. way. And it's not something that comes naturally to us. We're not, um, you know, we, we talk about all these different things where we've, we've evolved to, to, to be uh, a species that, that it's not really good at some of the things that are becoming a lot more important. Right. Yeah. Um, and So we've we've got to get better at that and being able to find a, a framework for being able to get out into the future and think about the future in a productive systematic way, you know, and, and being, able to let go of the idea that we're going to predict what's going to happen 10 years from now, because that's, that's silly. And, and, and it's probably not very productive, Um, but there, there is a way that you can, you know, invest time to think about the future in a, in a productive way that will allow you to identify some of those skills that either you personally or organizationally are going to need to develop to thrive in these different uh, environments. I mean, one of the things that I find very often when I work through these strategic foresight projects with clients is, is we, we look at five or six different scenarios that on the surface seem very different But as we start thinking about, okay, what do we have to do to thrive, you know, not just survive in these different Mm -hmm. scenarios, we, we identify a a set of characteristics, organizational or individual characteristics that keep coming up. And, and if we focus on those things, then we're very likely going to be developing capabilities and skills and uh, Mm -hmm. that, that we're going to be able to, that are going to, we're going to need in order to thrive in the future. Yeah. So
0: let's let's just riff on this for a minute. So if we were to kind of take the 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 current paradigm if you will around population. So we need to keep producing more because we're pushing up on 9 billion, we got a couple billion to go before we fill this place up. <laughs> I think that's that's a common belief. I mean that's that's what I was Taught as a kid and coming up and and you know going through University of Minnesota and going through my FFA career, like hey, we got to be ready to feed 11 billion people, like potentially within our lifetime or by the end of the century. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so so the, the, let's overlay that with the advent of I don't know, let's say machine learning. Cause, you know, that's a, that I would imagine like the advent of machine learning and AI now integrating into this space, so we can we can sprinkle that as a variable right into you know in, in in into that um you know we've got obviously labor um you know, which we've talked about which is going to be a big issue uh and then let's say demand uh overall you know likely i would assume increasing <laughs> if population is going up so if we were just to kind of like throw all that on the whiteboard and say hey let's let's riff on this let's let's do some strategic foresight <laughs> on this like can you can you walk me through like how would we intentionally do that because there's just so much like crap (laughs) when we look at putting that up there it's like well how do we how do we see through that how do i make decisions this the 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 there could be so much confusion but how would we start to leverage some of that stuff to start to use it
1: yeah so i i think a lot of it is is about uh, you know creating a a beginning to create a scenario that is you know coherence right? Mm -hmm. And so it it, it allows you to stretch your imagination a little bit. It doesn't have to be likely. You don't have to be personally attached to it. You're not making a prediction. You're just saying, okay, here's a thing that could happen. Yeah. If if we're in talking about, is it, is it 50%, you know, is there a 50% chance this happens or, you know, uh, something like that. So, you know, we're not necessarily marrying ourselves to, you know, trying to say, well, this is what I think is going to happen because if you you know, have a personal attachment to that, then it really kind of narrows your, your ability to, to think through that. So if you think, mm-hmm. okay, I think in the back of my mind, whether I want to admit this or not, this is what's going to happen in the next 10 years um, in terms of population trends, right? Um, it, it becomes a whole lot harder to, to keep your mind open to these different scenarios. So if you're able to say, okay, we're just trying to create a, a, a coherent, plausible strategy, or um, a plausible projection of what you know, a scenario might look like. So we might say, okay, in, in 10 years, that's probably a little bit long for major population trends, but certainly in 10 years, we're going to be seeing certain regions of the country um, or certain regions of the world declining in population. We're already seeing that um, mm-hmm. in Europe and Southeast Asia, I mean, in East Asia. Um, and you're going to see in the next 10 years, another group of countries kind of tip over that edge mm-hmm. right and so the international market and overall global demand is going to look a lot different
0: right mm-hmm. so we
1: can start thinking about what that means and so that means probably a shift in uh, demand from east asia and europe to the middle east and africa you know mm-hmm. so you know well what does that mean you know what is that you know we don't have any you know infrastructure as an industry and in, in in these certain areas for the pork industry obviously you know, if Northern Africa in the Middle East is one of the few remaining areas that still have, you know, very positive demographics, what does that mean for the fact that a majority of those people in that in Northern Africa in the Middle East are Muslim um, and don't consume our product? So, what does that mean, you know, for demand? Um, and then you start thinking about, um, you know, labor availability and how that interacts with AI. And I think we've all gotten a big sort of eye opener in the last even year or so where we've always sort of thought about automation, replacing blue collar jobs. Right. Um, And we've really not seen that happen at, I think the pace that a lot of people expected Um, what we didn't expect was that uh, some of these white collar jobs are very much being threatened by AI. And so how does that impact an agriculture business that is, you know, certainly, looking for help and making good decisions and things like that, um, but not haven't quite gotten there in terms of, of automation, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, is, is, does that sort of drive a trend where we're uh, seeing a group of young people that are more interested in working with their hands because that is a, a, a an area that seems more protected from, you know some of these uh, ai type threats and so you know maybe maybe we have fewer people that are actually more interested in working with their hands what does that mean for our industry right and so you can really have an interesting conversation around okay let's let's this scenario where there's fewer people uh, markets have changed have shifted and so we're having to try to you know source labor and you know, source consumers from different parts of the world. So what does that mean? Um, if we're in an, in the agriculture industry, and then this sort of maybe, uh, shift back towards more interest in, in, in people having physical jobs and working with their hands you know younger people you know could that potentially you know benefit us I and mean, how do we take advantage of that so you start mm-hmm. thinking through a scenario like that um, and, and you build a multifaceted scenario and say right. okay well if that happens you're not saying that it's going to happen but right. if that comes to pass what does that mean for our industry what does that mean for our company specifically what does it mean for me individually um, you know where am I going to be at where do I fit in that scenario Scenario. And I think that's a very productive conversation. And when you combine that with other scenarios where you take different combinations of those different variables and say, okay, well, maybe it's not quite, you know, that extreme. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe we have, you know, even fewer people than we, than we thought we would. Um, maybe we have people available, but they're, you know, even more uh, immigrants. And, you know, so here's a whole another scenario where we've got uh, big cultural challenges and how do we deal with those? And so there's different uh, ways to structure those different scenarios. And and as long as you're, you're doing that in a uh, structured way where you're evaluating these scenarios um, in the context of not necessarily how likely they are to happen, But if they were to happen, if that if that future was to come to pass, what does it mean? It's a very useful exercise in terms of of going through multiple scenarios and then going back and saying, hey, look, here's a couple of similarities. Here's a couple of topics that kept coming up. Right. I was taking notes and we looked at four really different scenarios. But this skill around Mm -hmm. being able to tap into non-traditional labor sources kept coming up. Maybe that's something we ought to really think
0: about. -hmm okay so it's all right I, I just I just want to unpack that a little bit right because I threw like three or four big things like here's how do we feed 11 billion people uh, we've got machine learning and AI coming into this we've got labor you you know issues in the uh in the picture and so we just throw all that on a wall and then we start you know start sifting it backwards and like look at all you know some different scenarios and, and basically we're I mean this is like kind of like a science fair right like we're gonna throw a hypothesis on the board and say well what if you know, well what if yep. population growth actually isn't what we've been told it's gonna to be for the last forty
1: years? Right. Right yeah, and so <laughs> so if you if you think about just the population issue, I mean I, I think, you know, I would certainly argue that the projections the the UN population division is the has been the gold standard so when you hear about sure. you know the population of country x is going to be whatever in 2080 that's very likely that that came from the the un projections and specifically the medium variant of the un projections. projection right and so uh, yeah. there's a lot that can be said about you know uh, you know what the un is actually saying and how that gets interpreted in the media um, but you know i think there's a lot of people out there well, i know there's a lot of people out there that that think that the UN is off and that that mm-hmm. the population globally is not going to peak in, I think their latest estimate was 2086, mm-hmm. but that it's probably going to peak a lot closer to 2050. And, and that's, that's the global population. And then we have key economies around the world where it already has tipped uh, over. You know, we lost a million people in China last year. Uh, mm-hmm. Even the UN is projecting the current population of China is 1.45 billion. Maybe Um, not not exactly what to believe, but um, uh, the projection for China's population, the UN projection for China's population in 2100 is 771 million. So, I mean, they're, and I, and I think they're, you know, underestimating that or overestimating what the population is going to be underestimating the impact um, of some of these changes, but I mean, That's remarkable. I mean, you're talking about Mm -hmm. the biggest country in the world losing half its population in the next 75 years. That may seem like a long time, but um, it's really in the big scheme of things it's not. And it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to happen over time. And So you're seeing a rapid aging in in some of these key economies around the world. And if you look at it from an agriculture perspective, they represent a very big percentage of our export customer Mm -hmm. base. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you look at where most of our ag products go today, those populations are either declining or will be declining soon. And then when you look at the places that it's growing and it's projected to continue to grow, at least natural population Mm -hmm. has continued to grow. It's almost exclusively in Africa Mm -hmm. and uh, the Middle East. And we do very little um, in the way of, you know, even in ag in in general, we do very little business with them. They represent you know, less than ten percent of our total uh, global exports. And so, in the short and medium term, we're going to be seeing a shift in these markets. And in the long term, we're going to be seeing an overall reduction in food demand. And that's mm-hmm. an environment that we're not prepared for. Well, in fact, we're not even prepared for thinking about what that looks like. And so, right. like you mentioned, you know, we we have these assumptions that are baked in to our systems, our strategies, our you know thought processes. Um, mm. And we don't even realize they're banked in. And, and two of those are that that the population is going to continue to increase. The global population is going to continue to increase. So it's going to be more and more mouths that we're going to have to feed. And then the second is that people are going to continually get richer and that they're going to be able to, you know, uh, do a better job of meeting their needs and eventually tip over where they can be, you know, more concerned about what they eat and not that they eat. Right. Mm. And so yeah. those are two assumptions that have really driven our, uh, our you know all the systems that we've built uh, to feed you know currently yeah. eight billion people, and it's a remarkable accomplishment. Yeah. but those at least one of those things is is not going to be the case uh, yeah. uh, in well, the in the relatively near future.
0: And you, I mean you just look at the United States, where I mean we're still the wealthiest, richest place in the world, and you have a significant percentage of our own population that can't afford good healthy food.
1: Right. right. And, and so I mean, you have you know, to
0: stuff out of a box and eat, you know, I mean over overly processed foods in order to, you know, <laughs> I mean, just afford to you know, just, just afford to live. I mean, I had a conversation with our, you know, we've got a, a young adult child, the, the oldest of the, of the six. And, you know, he's out there learning to adults and yes, you know, sat down to do some budgeting, right. Kind of work through a budget and like, well, what do you think you need for food? And he's like, well, last couple of weeks, I spent $55. And what are you eating? I can't look <laughs> at a grocery store and not spend $55. <laughs> yep. You know, well, not healthy anything, right. You know, it's all on, it's all in a box or frozen. Yep. And so, you know, it doesn't necess. to me, it doesn't, that, that little, that little thing right there, that assumption that we've been making for a long time doesn't necessitate that people will eat better. Right. 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 So- well,
1: and then, and then, you know, and then we, you can bring in, you know, food wastage. I mean, I was asked, I was speaking and I asked, someone asked me, are, are you not worried about uh, having to feed 11 billion people? And I said, I'm really not, I'm not worried about it at all. And they said, how could you say that? And I said, well, first of all, I don't think there's ever going to be 11 billion people on the planet. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to peak at probably somewhere around 9 billion around mid-century. Uh, so, you know, I don't think that's going to happen, but even if it does, I'm not terribly worried about it because we produce more food every year and we have for the last, you know, yes. 70 years produced about 2% more every year. And we already produce enough food to feed 11 billion people. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we waste a lot of it and that's got to change. And, you know, we have poor distribution systems, so that it doesn't always get to where it needs to be. And that needs to change as well. You know, and then I mean, we, we burn 10% of our global grain crop for fuel, you know um, you know, is, is that sustainable? Well, maybe it's sustainable, maybe it's not, but it, it's, if it comes down to people starving to death or us, you know, creating ethanol, I think surely we can, uh, we can uh, mobilize those calories for a better purpose. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I, I'm not concerned about that at all. I, I'm, I'm more concerned about the fact that we're going to have, you know, more than enough food and we don't have a way to think about what, our food production systems need to look like in that environment you know how yeah. do we you know it's always based on an assumption of scarcity and mm-hmm. if that scarcity doesn't you know exist anymore then those systems start to fall apart um, and so these mm-hmm. are very basic fundamental systems that we've relied on to you know achieve uh, you know arguably the biggest achievement in human history you know uh, feeding a, a population that exploded and and you know you know We've, we've successfully you know, met that demand. And, and so yeah. it's certainly something to be proud of. And that's part of the reason we have a hard time as an industry letting go of that, because it's something that we've really identified at. But I, but I, like I've told people, you know, in my speaking engagements around the world, you know, there's no reason you have to quit being proud of what we've accomplished in order to realize that things are changing and we're going to have to make some adjustments. Right. You know, we we yeah. definitely should be proud. I'm certainly proud of my role in it. Um, yeah. You know, my yeah. small role in, in, in this huge accomplishment of Epic proportions, but things are changing and we've got to figure out a way to adjust. Yeah.
0: Wow. So, so much to think about, man. And I would, I would love to go deeper. I want to do one more little scenario because this, this popped up about seven minutes ago and it hasn't left my mind even with all the other talking we've done here. So let's just take up a population like China as an example that all of a sudden we find out now is not necessarily, you know, growing at the rate we thought it was. In fact, by 2050 or um, certainly by the end of the century could be half of what it is today, right? So now it's all of a sudden going the other way. So to me, what that indicates is I should have an aging population, right? Um, with fewer young people to be able to do some of the labor jobs that we spent the first half of the interview talking about, right? So what what are some scenarios that that equates to? Because now I'm, I'm looking at, well, you don't have the pop... I mean, do you... How do you solve <laughs> for an aging population where the top half of your population is is the the heaviest and the oldest? And we do we even have enough labor to support the economy, defend the country, pay for the real estate because that's their biggest economy in China, right? right? So, yeah, I'm I'm a little puzzled by that. Like that to me, that doesn't that doesn't speak uh, to a great outcome.
1: Yeah, and it's it's you know, and and I'm not an economist, and so uh, I I try to be careful about making uh, predictions about what's going to happen there. But if the economy in China is going to continue to grow at anywhere close to the rate that it has grown over the last twenty or thirty years, they're going to have to uh, overcome a huge hurdle, and that is a population decline that's that's already begun to decline it wasn't supposed to happen until about 2030 2031 we found out last year even the chinese government uh, statistics they admitted it which the fact that it happened didn't surprise me the fact that they admitted it surprised me mm-hmm. quite a bit yeah, right. um, you know and and really nobody's projecting that it's gonna come back right so it's it's and and, and like i've been telling people uh, even speaking to, to groups in china i've been telling people you know look even if Chinese people started reproducing tomorrow at pre-industrial you know, rates, uh, you're still talking about many decades before you see the impact of this. So you know, there's, there is no scenario where you don't have a massive uh, population decline in China. And perhaps more importantly, you have what is arguably the fastest aging population in human history. And, and that is that has comes with, you know, huge ramifications. So there's a discussion right now going on in China about raising the retirement age. So the, mm-hmm. the retirement or pension age for most white collar workers um, is 60. Mm. Um, for some blue collar female workers, it can be as low as 50. And so wow. you have people living, you know, on average into their 80s. And, you know, so you're talking about wow you got a 50 year old woman that's you know going to live on a pension for 30 years maybe we could tap into that you know resource right maybe we could get them to work longer um that's generally not popular when it happens Uh, probably it's going to have to happen but it's generally not popular and it creates an even more complicating situation in asian cultures because those are the people that are taking care of the kids now so it's traditional for grandparents Mm -hmm. to play a primary role in caring for their grandchildren. And so if they don't have that resource available, so if mom and our grandma and grandpa are still working and they're not able to play a role in taking care of the kids, then that drives the the fertility rate down even further and exacerbates the problem. So one of the challenges that we have with some of this population stuff is it's very hard to come up with a solution that doesn't also create as many problems as it solves i mean it's a it's a really complicated situation and i certainly don't have the answer but i mean there's not an economic system in the world that is designed to thrive in that sort of environment where the number of workers and you know what they they call productive people you know from an economic perspective um the percentage of productive people um is is you know at at all-time lows and we just don't have a model for what that looks like and so we're we're flying in the dark and you know i mean you can look at japan um mm-hmm. you know right now my, my friend uh, daryl bricker shared a while back with um with his uh, uh subscribers i think he shared that uh, uh there's more uh adult diapers sold in japan than there is baby diapers today
0: yeah.
1: um and so that's you know that tells you a lot about what's going on but you know japan went through that transition after they got rich and they also went to that tra- through that transition in a time when most of the rest of the world was still actively growing and things were you mm-hmm. know you know mm-hmm. going pretty swimmingly and they had pretty good connections uh, to the to the rest of the world and so you know some of the strategies that the japanese have implemented are not going to be available for the chinese and, and some of these other countries that are going through this transition so um, yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely going to be a huge paradigm shift, and it's very concerning to me that there's not – I mean, you're starting to see some momentum. Some of us have been out here talking about this issue um, you know, for several years now. It's starting to gain some momentum, and I'm certainly happy to see yeah. that, but, but we desperately need to begin a dialogue as an industry – um Mm -hmm. and and it's not just agriculture i think agriculture is a great example of of an industry that's going to be impacted here in a very unique way but it's going to touch every corner of of the economy Mm -hmm. and you know like i said we don't have a, a system i mean you know china's economic system very different than ours obviously but it still relies on the same basic premise that the older workers or older retirees are going to be supported by younger workers. And when there's fewer and fewer younger workers and more and more older retirees, um, that becomes an unsustainable system very yeah. quickly.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it's such a fascinating time. And I'm, and thank you for, for diving into that last one for me to just you know really give people a a snapshot of hey, here's something that could could be happening right even if it's plausible even if it's not a per, you know even if not perfect from a this is exactly how it plays out it's not a prediction it's not a prophecy uh but it is a, a plausible scenario that we might yeah. be ending up in and and so from an intentional leadership perspective right i'm at the age now where <clears throat> you know we're we're starting to transition from kids to like hey maybe in 5 10 years we might have grandkids and and you start to see your lineage really start to expand almost exponentially right so what am i leaving behind for that next generation. To me that's what an intentional leader ought to be thinking about like you know as leaders in this space and especially in agriculture the most important industry that there is like it's when everything else if the lights go off and everything else goes away like you still got to eat. And so like this is a space that we need and we need to be thinking about like well what are we leaving behind for future generations? And I'm not talking about just leaving the farm behind that affects way less than 1% of Americans, right? So um what what are we leaving behind in terms of you know food and food production and what's what's the legacy right of this space look like and it's a fascinating conversation and maybe sometime we'll have to jump on and and when we when we learn more or have other ways to look other lenses to look at this through jump on and and uh, and talk some more about it but this has been fascinating to me I did not follow my normal script that I do with all the other interviewees because I'm like, I, I get Todd's brain here for a minute. I want to give people a different experience and just like give them the uh like hey, you you gotta have a mechanism in your life, in your world, within your leadership team, in your um, in your arsenal to to use some strategic foresight and start thinking outward. And we can do this in on a on 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 macro macro stuff, geopolitical stuff like this. And you can also take that all the way down to your personal life, right? What's your mechanism 30 minutes over coffee in the Bible in the morning to have some strategic
1: foresight for my day, you know, it's
0: the same thing.
1: Yep. yep. <laughs> so. Well, and I think the, the intentional kind of framework applying to that, I think is really important because, um, You know, I mean, I have a tendency to to spend too much time in that world and not enough time in in the present. Right. That's my that's my natural inclination. And so, um, you know, that's that's not productive either. Right. You have to to live your life and you have to, you know, so I have to be more uh, intentional about making sure that I'm, you know, living in the moment and meeting my current responsibilities and don't spend too much time uh, with my head in the clouds trying to think about what's going to happen in the future. But um, certainly I think that's uh, uh, the opposite is a much uh, bigger issue for a lot of people, especially in our industry, but I think in Mm -hmm. general is, you know, and, and I understand some of the hesitancy. I mean, the idea that you're going to, You know, if you take that short-term business planning mentality and say, okay, well, we're trying to project with some reasonable accuracy what our revenue is going to be over the next 12 months and what our cost of production is going to be over the next 12 months. Well, that's not entirely unreasonable, right? But if that's what you're trying to do and trying to project what's my revenue going to be in 2033? And what's my cost of production going to be in 2033? I'm not sure that's even a productive exercise because there's Mm -hmm. so many different variables there. You can't predict the future. And, and so what I'm trying to encourage people with the strategic foresight framework is, is there's a way to productively uh, live in the future and, and think about the future um, in, in in a way that doesn't require you to predict the future. I mean, there's a there's an expression in strategic foresight that um, that we're not trying to predict the future, where uh, at least not accurately. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and then the other one that I that I really like is that we're not trying to predict the future. We're trying to predict the futures, right? And understand what those different scenarios might look like. And to me, that's a, a productive way to 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 put yourself in in the future, and uh, you know, and build out scenarios where you're saying even some of the projections that I do on population, I'm saying, okay, well, you don't have to agree that this is what's going to happen. This is what we think is a likely scenario. So it's certainly plausible. Um, and, you know, and what does that mean? Right. And so we can look at even different scenarios there. You know, you mentioned, you know, earlier, you know, maybe, maybe we're not right about that. You know, One of the things that almost nobody disagrees with is that the population, the global population is going to peak at some time in the next you know, 75 years Mm -hmm. and begin declining. So that discussion about what happens when that happens is really more of a matter of, is it going to happen in 20 years or is it going to happen in 50 years? It's not a matter of if it's when and to what degree. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And so if we're thinking about scenarios, I mean, uh, it's hard to imagine a scenario where the population, global population, doesn't peak sometime in the next 75 years and begin declining, right? And so we can be pretty confident that that's going to happen. Um, and so then we're just talking about the, the degrees and the, the time frames, And certainly that can make a big difference, but, um, but if eventually that's going to happen. Eventually we're going to have to develop some systems for that scenario. And I see very little disadvantage in spending some time trying to think about what those could look like
0: yeah wow well it's such a such a fascinating um world that that you live in and and I, I guess if we can't have the stargate then we have to then we have to leverage uh strategic foresight <laughs> yeah for sure <laughs> all right so Todd how do we get how do we hook people up with you how do we get in touch what's the what's the best way to reach out
1: so I'm pretty active on LinkedIn um I have a, uh, a personal website where Uh, really kind of focused on some of my speaking and and writing around strategic foresight and bigger agriculture. Uh, That's Me, So T-O-D-D-T-H-U-R-M-A-N.me. And then the company's website is swineinsights.com. And uh, so you can find more information about me than you probably ever wanted to know and uh, link to my personal website from there and, and find out what we do in terms of uh, our uh, consulting and training business. Fantastic. All right, man. Thanks for being on with us today. You bet. Thanks for having me.
0: I hope today's episode brought you a great deal of value about what it takes to lead life and lead in this industry with intention. If you want to go deeper on the topic of leading with intention. I encourage you to head on over to intentionaltoolbox.com and get the seven free tools that will help you to lead your life in all areas with a greater deal of intention. That's intentionaltoolbox.com. And finally, if, if this message resonated today, if there was something in here that you got value from, I promise you there's someone else in your life who also would get value from this. So please share the episode, share the podcast, and make sure that you subscribe.